Back up top, shot through traffic, save made, follow-up try, that one hits a body in front, and a score! It's a score! It's a score! And the Ice Bears have a 4-3 lead with 30 seconds remaining in the hockey game! Oh, what a hit! Welcome to the SPHL in Knoxville! Comes in on the right side, through the right circle, taking it and fed across, they score! Welcome in to the Knoxville Ice Bears podcast. My name is Joel Silverberg. I appreciate you taking the time to check out the KIB pod, whether you're doing so on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. We'll have a mailbag coming up later on in the episode. So now that Knoxville has played every team in the SPHL, thought it would be a good time to allow fans from around the league to submit questions. So we'll get to a couple of those coming up later on before this episode is over. And Knoxville, kind of unfortunate results on its current homestead. Knoxville has gone 0-3 on what was supposed to be its longest homestead of the season. Haven't been at 100%. Guys have been sick. Uh, There seems to be some sort of illness going on uh, around the locker room. Wouldn't necessarily call that the number one factor as so far as to why Knoxville has lost three straight games. I I think Knoxville's gotten outplayed. They've obviously been outshot. I think Knoxville struggled in the second period, and I I think it's just a number of factors that have all come together. And on top of that, Knoxville's had to play against three really good teams, and they're going to play against another really good team on Friday against Fayetteville to close out the homestead. Then they're going to have to go to the Crown Coliseum, and then they get another game against Roanoke, except this time it's at the Berglund Center. So, um, you, you know, when you're down in ninth place, every team that you play against right now is having a better season than you are. So that's kind of the situation that Knoxville's in. Now, Knoxville's been in that situation before. They were 0-6 and in 10th place back in early November, and they went 8-3 and over a span of 11 games, picking up a lot of wins against teams that were doing pretty well at the time. Knoxville's beaten Fayetteville already once this season. They have a win on the road against Huntsville. They have a win against Peoria, and then, of course, four wins against Macon, um, and then they picked up a win over Evansville in mid-November as well. Now, things have changed in a big way since then. Knoxville is currently on a bit of a skid, having lost three straight games at home. Evansville is 5-0-1 in its last six. Um, Huntsville continues to be very competitive. They've been a tough out, so they've gotten some good wins, but they've also lost some games in overtime to pretty good teams. And I think for Knoxville, it's having to really figure out what needs to happen offensively in order for this team to consistently compete? Because defensively, I, it, you know, and obviously it's tough to say, well, how can you say the team's playing well defensively when they're getting outshot? I, I think Knoxville's issues with getting outshot have been more about being unable to sustain offensive possession, forcing the defense to spend more time in its own. And now there have been mistakes by the defense that have had led to quality scoring chances and have led to goals. We'll get more to that in, in just a moment. But looking back at this three-game home stretch, I think Birmingham, Knoxville got outplayed, but I also think Birmingham is just such a deep team right now. Look, you shouldn't get outshot 30-14 to 14 the way that Knoxville did last Friday, but I, I think you look at the situation and see the depth that Birmingham has up front, and obviously they've been the hottest team in the league right now, but I think Knoxville's inability to possess the puck really hurt them, and in all three games, Knoxville was heavily outshot in the second period, 
and Knoxville has outscored five to nothing in the second period of those three games combined, and it really led a big difference because Knoxville led at the end of the first period in all three games and did not lead at the end of the second period in any of those games, and they trailed in two of them. So they were tied with Roanoke on Tuesday and then never got the lead back after surrendering it with that goal to John McDonald. So going back to Birmingham, I think Birmingham just continued to overwhelm Knoxville down the stretch, and obviously there were a couple of big big mistakes that led to goals of the turnover in the neutral zone that generated a three-on-one. You could really make the argument that all three goals that Troy Coburn gave up in his first start for the Ice Bears really weren't on him. Maybe that first one you'd like to have back, but also that that play gets set up with that one-timer from the right circle because Knoxville turns the puck over in its own zone when it had the chance for a breakout and then sustained possession in the zone by Birmingham leads to a man getting open in front of the crease. Birmingham continues to work the puck around the perimeter. Knoxville tries to expand and try to force Birmingham out to the wall. It opens things up in the slot. And then on the third goal, it's the turnover that leads to the three on one. Knoxville gives up an empty netter. Cole McKechnie is able to uh, get one late, but you know, ultimately I just thought Knoxville was outplayed for the majority of that game, even though it had the lead at the end of the first period. And that's the thing is in all three of these games, even with Knoxville having the lead, Knoxville is still getting outshot. Knoxville still didn't have as many chances as its opponent. And so you kind of look at those three games and say, Knoxville didn't necessarily hold up on the gas or let off the gas in the final two periods. It was more about the odds and percentages of how those game trajectories were going ultimately caught up to the Ice Bears in the second and third period. Against Quad City, really, really tough mistakes by Seth Enzer and Brendan Daller in the second period. Knoxville leading by one. Cody Karpinski's made some big saves to keep in a one nothing game. And suddenly, back-to-back delay of game penalties. And, and it's not like they were blatant. I mean, Enzer is getting cornered back in his own end, tries to find the glass on the right side, just misses it, has to take the penalty, and then Knoxville wins the defensive zone faceoff to start the penalty kill. Daller tries to make a really routine play, and the puck just comes up on him and ends up going over the glass into into the netting back in his own zone. And we've seen Daller make that play so many times. He's a solid penalty killer for Knoxville. And, you know, just the puck just shot up on him. And so that's not... You know, it's not like Daller did anything wrong, just didn't get the result that he wanted. And so Daller has to go, and then suddenly Quad City wins the offensive zone faceoff. Logan Nelson has a one-timer, and just like that, we're tied. And then Cole Golka finds a net front scramble for a rebound, makes it a 2-1 to game, and then Knoxville catches a Brad Baker, bad break on a penalty. Kind of thought that the Quad City skater skated over McKechnie's stick that led to a tripping minor that led to a second power play goal, and Knoxville was able to pull back to within one, had chances at the end, but all three of these games, Knoxville's having to get into desperation mode late in the third period, and it's just too little too late. And then against Roanoke, Knoxville, I thought, looked a little bit better on the forecheck. I thought Knoxville had more life offensively overall, but at the same time, and Roanoke had a dozen or more shots in each period. They were out shooting Knoxville 44-20 to before Knoxville pulled its goalie and try to get more shots generated. And so, you know, and 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 here's the thing. I think Roanoke ultimately outplayed Knoxville for the vast majority of the game, but I also thought there were stretches where Roanoke did not play well and Knoxville failed to take advantage of it. And so I think Knoxville trying to get its own footing under itself for a good portion of the game 
ultimately didn't allow them to be able to take their opportunity when Roanoke opened up a seam. And there were so many odd man rush, rush attempts for Knoxville over the course of this game, Roanoke getting caught out of position and suddenly a, a pass goes wide or a, a, somebody overskates the puck or somebody mishandles it or somebody doesn't see where a line mate is or an offside is called. And so all these little mistakes that just piled up in a big way I think is ultimately what really hurt Knoxville down the stretch because Knoxville was still in the game longer, I think, against Roanoke than it was for Quad City or Birmingham. Uh, you felt like, you know, towards the end of the Quad City game, okay, Knoxville's going to make a push here because they got the late goal by McKechnie and they're going to try to get something back here, but didn't really have a ton of high-quality chances to get that game-tying goal. Against Roanoke, they tied the game in the third period, then gave the go-ahead goal up again to Steven Leonard. So I, I think with Roanoke, what they were able to work really well were the cross-ice passes in the offensive zone that set up the play to Billy Roach. He was able to come into the slot. Karpinski has a slight screen, can't really get to his right. He, he also looked like he lost his footing as he was trying to set himself before the shot. Not saying it, it it's the reason that Roach scored because Karpinski did get to set himself, but have to imagine that you're got to be a little bit antsy as a goalie in that situation where you kind of looked like he kind of slipped for a moment, tries to set himself, Roach fires a missile. It's a good shot by him and puts it past Karpinski. Um, and then Brady Florence scores to give Knoxville the lead with three minutes left in the first period. McDonald scores the only goal of the second period. And on a similar play, cross-ice pass to the perimeter. McDonald gets to the left circle, fires. There's four bodies in front of the crease, and Karpinski just can't see the puck. The third period is probably where there's a little bit more frustration because Knoxville executes a really good neutral zone trap. Dawson McKinney comes up, makes a good play, forces Roanoke to dump the puck in deep. Troy Murray and Joshua Carlson are back there for Knoxville. Murray gets back first, doesn't see Alex DiCarlo sweeping in behind him. His pass through the trapezoid to Carlson is a little bit soft. DiCarlo steals the puck away. Ford is able to come through the circle. Carlson doesn't get the puck, doesn't get the shooter, and it leaves Nick Ford wide open for a quick shot from in front of the crease, which Roanoke had been setting those up against Knoxville all night. That was the first and only time that it finally bit Knoxville and beat Karpinski. So after Davis Kirkendall scores off what was a good rush, McKinney makes a nice pass. Kirkendall, a nice finish to get it underneath Rodebush. Probably one that Rodebush would have liked to have had back. He, he kind of saw his reaction after the goal. He knew he should have had it, um, but... You know, you put pucks on neck and net, and sometimes good things happen. Kirkendall was really fired up after that one. Um, I thought it was a good breakout by Knoxville. It was a good rush by Knoxville. McKinney has played really well offensively over the last several weeks, um, and it doesn't matter where he is. They've put him on the first line. They've had him on the third line. He continues to contribute. He's been really, really good in his rookie campaign over the last few weeks for Knoxville, and he's been a bright spot offensively uh, for the Ice Bears. Um, and then Steven Leonard set up with another cross-ice pass to the perimeter. Jonathan Bartuccio Pereira is there on the left side, gets a shot off. Originally, I thought it was Tyler Rolo who um, blocked the shot. It was Brady Florent who got his stick on it and kind of turned that fastball into a changeup on Cody Karpinski where there's already traffic. So it, it leads to a rebound. Steven Leonard is there. Knoxville didn't do a good job of getting guys away from the blue ice, and it led to two of Knoxville, uh, Knoxville's goals that they surrendered. And so Leonard finds the rebound. He's able to punch it past Karpinski, and that's all she wrote. Knoxville had chances late. Um, I think what was most frustrating about the final two minutes is Knoxville forced Roanoke to ice the puck four times after Karpinski was pulled, 
Knoxville lost four consecutive offensive zone draws. And you can't get back into games when you're unable to possess the puck. Knoxville got a couple of chances late. Um, you know, you had the opportunity where Florent was able to get the puck off the right side of the crease. He made a decent backhand pass just to get it in front. It deflects right to Kirill Nishnikov, who's on the back doorstep. Rodebush didn't know where the puck was. He was able to get the paddle over to the right side as a desperation attempt, but Brendan Pepe dives out, gets his stick on the puck. It's a great diving save by Pepe, and Nishnikov just couldn't get the puck on net. And it's kind of one of those games where both teams are making mistakes. Both teams are having to grind out. And Roanoke just made a couple more plays in the third period than Knoxville did. And, you know, you can make the argument that Knoxville is fortunate to be in that game. But I also thought that Karpinski played really well in net. He made 40 saves. Um, and Knoxville really didn't test Rodebush a ton, especially down the stretch. Knoxville had 12 shots in the third period, but it's not like these were quality chances that Rodebush was having to stop. And Rodebush, you know, Maybe that's not fair to him because his positioning is usually spot on. He doesn't get himself in a lot of situations where he has to make those desperation saves. Not to say that other guys have worse positioning, but Rodebush, with his combination of his size and his skill set, he makes it easy on himself because of how prepared he is in net. Knoxville fans have known that um, with him being on both sides of that as an opponent and as a player for the Ice Bears organization. Um, but I think that for... Knoxville, it's the, you know, you miss out on a couple of prime chances. There were a couple of odd man rushes where guys passed maybe when they should have shot, guys shot when they should have passed. And, you know, I think also in the third period, what was so frustrating, Nick Ford takes a roughing minor 17 seconds into the frame and Knoxville does nothing on the ensuing power play. They gave up an odd man rush. They gave up three shots on goal. So Knoxville gets two minutes of being on the attack does nothing with the power play, and three minutes later, Nick Ford scores. So Knoxville is kind of on its heels when it's on the man advantage. Well, then that gives Roanoke confidence once it kills off the penalty and feels like they have control of the game because now they've got a skater back when they almost took the lead on a shorthanded goal. And so I, I think that's where, you know, that's where, you know, game trends kind of start to play a factor because teams know that, hey, if we're killing off penalties easily then we should have a lot more confidence in being aggressive when we're at five on five. And, and that's what a lot of what Roanoke did. You know, they were able to, to score goals because they possessed the puck in the offensive zone. Three of their four goals came off of attempts from the perimeter. And at the same time on the back end, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to just harp on Knoxville and, and sound too negative because it was a competitive game. But at the same time, Roanoke committed so many mistakes in its own zone. I mean, it's Knoxville's first goal of the game occurred because Bartuccio Pereira makes an errant pass up the wing on the breakout. Brendan Dowler intercepts it, gets it over to Nishnikov. He's able to just tee off on it and beats Rodebush up high. So, um, you know, there were a couple, there were actually two instances in the third period where Roanoke trying to be aggressive on the breakout, turned the puck over in its own zone. Knoxville had numbers and didn't execute and didn't get shots on goal. So, that's where that's where it kind of has to tie together is, you know, when Roanoke committed mistakes in its own end, Knoxville was not as opportunistic. When Knoxville committed mistakes in its own end, Roanoke was ready for it. And and so I know that Stephen Leonard technically got the game-winning goal. He got the fourth one. The momentum fully shifted in, in Roanoke's favor, I feel like, when Nick Ford scored to give Roanoke a 3-2 lead. So even with Kirkendall's goal, tying it at three, 
it really felt like Roanoke was still comfortable. There was about a two-minute stretch after Davis's goal where Knox was able to generate a couple more chances and had a little bit of life in him, but it really felt like Roanoke took control of the game back and settled into itself really, really easy. And so that's kind of the story with all three games. Knoxville led at the end of the first period. Knoxville had the momentum going into the intermission. Then Knoxville gets heavily outshot, doesn't score in the second period at all, and then scores halfway or later through the third period after it's already given up multiple unanswered goals. And so Knoxville never led in the third period of any of these three games, never scored in the second period, got outshot, got outscored in the second, and then didn't close out the game down the stretch the way that it wanted it wanted to. And then Knoxville was shut out on the power play all weekend and in multiple games came closer to giving up shorthanded goals than scoring power play goals. Now, I, th- I thought Knoxville did it, uh, overall a really good job at staying disciplined. They did not face a lot of penalty kills. I think that was for different reasons over the course of the weekend. I thought Tuesday, Knoxville was really disciplined. Um, the hooking call against Troy Murray probably doesn't get called in the Quad City or Birmingham games because of how William Jacques was calling those two games. He was letting a lot of things go. The tripping call, you can't argue. He, you know, He's trying to make a play. It, it was kind of unfortunate because I thought Knoxville did a good job at slowing down Mac Jansen in the neutral zone. Murray tries to get to the puck, gets Jansen skate incidentally. It's a good tripping call, um, and, and you know it, it just is what it is. Knoxville killed off both penalties, um, so you know not a whole lot to say about the special teams play. You know Knoxville killed off the penalties that they needed to, um, and penalty kill was put in a tough spot in the second period against Quad City. And then after Brady Florent gets a shorthanded opportunity in the third period against the Storm, doesn't convert the breakaway. Now he's behind the rush going the other direction, and Quad City sets it up well for Mike Moran to score what was ultimately the game-winning goal. So, again, it's where Knoxville doesn't take advantage of its opportunities, and then at the other end, the opponent capitalizes on theirs. So... Just kind of a really unfortunate three-game stretch. Not having Justin Levesque and Cole McKechnie against Roanoke certainly didn't help. I don't know if it... And I was talking to Jason Price Thursday morning. He said it definitely made an impact on their lineup and what they were able to do. I I would not credit Knoxville playing short as to why Roanoke won the hockey game. Based on what we saw when McKechnie and Levesque were in the lineup against Birmingham and Quad City. Those games all played out in similar fashions. So could one of those guys have made a difference? Could, you know, Cole had scored in the previous two games. Could he have scored again to tie the game? You know, maybe, possibly. Um, you know, Seth Enzer having to play forward, not his natural position. Obviously, that kind of affects your second forward line there. But I, I just think when you look at the overall product and the way that Roanoke played, you know, maybe it changes things, but there was nothing definitive that I could look at and say, yeah, if McKechnie and Levesque were in the lineup, then... You know, Knoxville would have won the game easily. Like, there's nothing that I can point to that suggests that, you know, maybe the game goes to overtime and maybe Knoxville wins it. Not saying that, you know, they, oh, it wouldn't have mattered because obviously those guys are valuable to what Knoxville does. Levesque, I think, has had, um, you know, he had a good month where he's starting to contribute offensively a little bit more. He's winning more wall, ba- wall battles. Um, he's been more of a grinder for Knoxville and has been good defensively. And Cole has been one of Knoxville's better scorers. I mean, he had a stretch of, four goals in five games before missing the game against Roanoke on Tuesday. So those guys are valuable for what Knoxville does. And, you know, it, it is possible that they could have made an impact. I'm not saying that they for sure wouldn't have, but there was nothing that, you know, from this game on Tuesday that tells me Knoxville would have completely changed the outcome. Maybe they would have, 
but there's nothing that tells me that that would have been the case if both of those guys had played because of how well Roanoke continued to set up chances in the Knoxville. And it wasn't just that Roanoke outshot Knoxville 44-27. to It's that Roanoke had a ton of prime scoring chances. And the game easily could have been out of hand by the end of the second period. Instead, it was tied. And so Karpinski has continued to do a really good job at keeping Knoxville in games. I thought Troy Coburn played really well in his first start as an ice bear. I, th- I thought it looked really good against Birmingham. And that's a high-flying team that has a ton of speed, a lot of scoring threats, and has been red hot. And I, I thought Coburn was up to the task really well, and I thought he got left out to dry a couple of times. I also want to clarify this from the game against uh, Roanoke on Tuesday. Um, initially, we were told that Keith Grooms was the referee. Apparently, there was some sort of last-minute substitution. I was not notified until after the game began, so I corrected on the broadcast. It was Derek Collins that was actually the referee um, in that game, and even on the SPHL website, they still haven't updated that. They still have it listed as Grooms, um, but for whatever reason, there was some sort of change. Grooms did not officiate the game on Tuesday between Knoxville and Roanoke. So that was Derek Collins. That was the referee. Um, and also, I, I've seen this frustration. So for those who did not see it, right before Brady Florence goal, there was a cross-ice pass that led to a backdoor opportunity for Knoxville. Rodebush was trying to get from left to right to make a save. Um, I, I personally did not see what happened with the puck. Knoxville thought it had scored. Knoxville fans thought the Ice Bears had scored. But when Rodebush tried to sprawl out to his right-hand side, he inadvertently kicked the net off with his right skate. The goal judge never called a goal. The referee never made a call one way or another. Um, There was a brief conversation between Derek Collins and the referee er, and the goal judge, and then Collins came out and said no goal. So the puck was then dropped in the left faceoff circle since the puck was in the Roanoke zone when play was stopped. I don't know if the puck went in or not. Um, talking to some other members of our staff who were down closer to the ice um, when the play occurred, felt like that the puck uh, was going in before the net was dislodged. But what happened on the ensuing faceoff, Tyler Rolo muscles his way forward, ties up the puck at the dot, Florent comes in, fires a shot over Rotobush's glove, and Knoxville scores. So I, I've I've seen some frustration vented by Ice Bears fans that if that goal had been, oh, well, we got a goal disallowed in a game that we lost by one. Okay, if if the goal is awarded to Knoxville, Brady's goal isn't happening. Because if a goal's awarded, then the ensuing faceoff is at center ice, not in the Roanoke zone. So you, you can't say that, oh, well, Brady just would have scored later. You don't know that. So... You know, Brady scored three seconds after, you know, Knoxville uh, had a possible goal disallowed. You can't take transitive property like that and say, oh, well, the game would have been tied. That's not how sports work, especially hockey. That's not how hockey works. Um, Because Rolo wouldn't have had an offensive zone faceoff, meaning Florent wouldn't have had an opportunity to just tee off on a puck from the left faceoff circle because that wouldn't have been the play. Knoxville would have been taking a draw at center ice. And I seriously doubt that Florent was going to try to tee up one uh, from the red line to try to beat Rodebush from well out there. So, yes, obviously it's frustrating when goals get disallowed. I do not think officiating is the reason that Knoxville lost to Roanoke on Tuesday. It, you know, and I and I don't think it's the reason that Knoxville lost to Quad City on Saturday. I think that there were a couple of, um, you know, I I didn't think it was a a great penalty call on McKechnie that led to the game winning goal, but I also think that Knoxville needs to you know, stop playing from behind in the third period and Knoxville needs to stop getting outplayed in the second period. And so 
uh, you know, Knoxville's had a, its longest homestead of the season, and it's kind of wasted it so far. You know, Knoxville's had three leads. It has three regulation losses. Like, you would have at least liked, you know, a couple of these games to get to overtime, and Knoxville just hasn't played well in the final 40 minutes. Um, and to be honest, at, at times, Knoxville hasn't played well in the first period. It just has coincidentally gone into the first intermission with the lead. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not you know, breaking any news here. The guys know that it needs to be better. Nobody's happy. You know, morale is still high from, you know, what I'm, I'm hearing and seeing. You know, it seems like the, you know, the chemistry in the locker room, that's not an issue. I don't think there's finger pointing or, you know, guys are, you know, playing the blame game or anything like that. And I think it's just frustrating. You know, it's frustrating where guys are sick, they're not feeling well, and then two guys can't play on Tuesday because they're not feeling well. You, you know, you're, you win five straight games, and then suddenly you have, you know, two home games postponed, and, you know, you lose all this momentum from your five-game win streak, and then you have to wait another week to play, and so are you a little bit rusty? And then because the ice is having issues, you don't even get to practice in your own rink until the day of that first game back, your first home game in a month. So... You know, there, there's all these, it's obviously frustrating. I don't know if, it, but none of those single reasons here, they're the reason that Knoxville dropped three games. It's just, you know, Knoxville's just gotten outplayed and Knoxville hasn't executed when it's had opportunities. And when Knoxville was, you know, beating Fayetteville, beating Peoria, it was, it were those opportunities. You know, Knoxville was getting power play goals. Knoxville was, you know, killing off penalties. Knoxville was, you know, taking advantage of its opportunities. Knoxville played well in the second and third periods. They closed out games better. So it's, you know, and again, it's just this stretch right here. You know, Knoxville won five straight games. They have dropped three straight. Knoxville could easily turn it around this weekend, especially if the illness that a couple of guys are feeling or, you know, if that starts to clear up a little bit. So hopefully that's the case. Um, but there, there's nobody sitting in the locker room right now who's saying, yeah, we're content with the results that we're getting. Um, the coaching staff is trying to do everything that it can to make sure that this upcoming three-game weekend goes better than the last one. And so Knoxville try to right the ship. It's got a home-and-home home against Fayetteville, and then it closes out the calendar year against Roanoke on Sunday. And that's never easy to have to go to the Berglund Center and play on the road. It's always really tough. So told you about the mailbag earlier. Knoxville's now played everybody in the league at least once. So a couple of questions. Uh, this is from Tommy. Tommy, appreciate the question. What are you looking the most forward to in this weekend's game against the Markmans? I'm going to assume that that he means Marksman. Um, I think what I'm looking forward to about this game, going to be interesting to see Fayetteville's had quite a bit of roster attrition through the month of December. Um, you know, they announced that they're getting Tyler Roy back after losing Frankie McClendon. McClendon had just been added, hasn't actually played a game for the club. Um, they don't have Connor O'Brien, um, who's been their leading goaltender. He was placed on the 30 day IR at the beginning of December. So he is not going to be available for this weekend. Knoxville plays Fayetteville next weekend as well in January. So O'Brien would be eligible to come off the IR. Um, but I do not know the extent of his IR status. So I don't know if they're planning on keeping him on there longer or what is going to be the case, but they did get Tyler Roy back and they've had Ryan Kenny, who's been solid for them as well. Um, so I, I think what I'm most interested to see is just how Knoxville responds to what happened in the last three games. Cause the, the schedule is also a little bit difficult. So you, you have the week off after the 
ice maintenance issues unexpectedly occur, then because you don't have ice, you're still practicing at your alternate facility. And then you come back the day of and you're having to learn how to play, you know, new sheet of ice, three games in five days. And then, you know, the team didn't do anything on the 24th and 25th. They were given the two days off. So they didn't practice. Um, so then you're playing that game against Roanoke with no practice, as is, you know, I'm sure a similar schedule for just about any team in the league. So now the Ice Bears have had an opportunity to practice in the Coliseum. Hopefully they're a little bit refreshed. Um, I do. I have not been told one way or another definitively the status of McKechnie and Levesque. I don't know if they're going to play. I don't know who's going to start in net. Um, I think, and I don't think goaltending's the issue. And that's the thing is normally when you're going through skids, you know, goaltending's the issue. And I feel like a large percentage of goals that have been scored against Knoxville this year have really been because of, you know, breakdowns in the defensive zone. It, it's been goalies being put in tough spots and being asked, "Hey, can you bail us out here?" And 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 here's the thing, the goalies have bailed Knoxville out in a lot of ways, even during this three-game losing streak. It's just you're asking them to bail you all out um, more times than you really should be over the course of 60 minutes. So I, I think for Knoxville and Fayetteville, the thing I'm most intrigued by is you know, just how does Knoxville come together and how do they respond after finally being able to practice at the Knoxville Civic Coliseum for the first time in weeks? So, um, and that too, just Fayetteville, I think is a really good team. They're a really sound team. And even with the roster attrition, they still have guys that are, um, you know, really consistent for them. Uh, Tyler Barrow was, you know, kind of an interesting acquisition after, you know, Peoria had his rights, they get Brennan Blazak and then they decide to, you know, make the trade. And so now Barrow's with Fayetteville. So I'm, I'm just curious to see how Fayetteville looks compared to the last time Knoxville saw them a little more than a month ago. Um, and that was a game where the Ice Bears played really, really well. Um, but Jordy Stallard and Cam Huff were also a part of that, and they are currently not with the team. So uh, I, I think just the overall matchup is very intriguing because now you've got a home-and-home home with this team, and I think the matchup is always very good. I think Ryan Crothers has done a really good job in his first season. Um, so, Tommy, appreciate the question. Thanks for checking out the podcast. Chase asks, how big of a factor do you think the crowd can play in a game? The Bears didn't get the win against the Dogs, but I feel like we were in Rodebush's head considering he acknowledged us with a win with a wave as he left the ice with the win. Hashtag M1 Mafia. So Chase, appreciate that. And uh, the M1 Mafia referring to the uh, fan section that's in section M1 at the Knoxville Civic Coliseum. I don't want to speak for Austin, whether fans were in his head or not. I, I, I'm not going to answer that. If Austin has you know said something, then that's, you know, Credit to him if he's acknowledging the fans. I, I I gotta be honest. I thought I saw blue jerseys in that area where he was waving to. At least I thought I did. So I thought maybe he was waving to some Roanoke fans that made the trip. I wasn't a hundred percent certain, but uh, so I I don't want to speak to, you know, getting into a goaltender's head whether or not that happened. Just because I don't know firsthand if that was the case. I think the crowd can play a role into games. Um, will it single-handedly decide the outcome? Probably not because, you know, if one team's just better than another and you've got the crowd on your side at home and you're the worst team, it may not happen. So, um, and I, you know, I think we had solid crowds for these three games. Um, and Knoxville, you know, if we, if we have a below-average crowd, you know, I remember during the COVID year with only 1,500 people, I thought the Knoxville fans that were in attendance that year did a great job at staying loud. And so the atmosphere in the Coliseum is quite something and it's something that I hear from players especially players that have played for other teams and then come to Knoxville it's something I hear all the time of 
you know, this is a really tough place to play because the fans are right on top of you the way they have the rink set up. So really grateful that I get to be on this side of it and have the crowd cheering for me instead of against me. Um, so I don't, you know, I, I, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily know how big of a percentage it plays, but players talk about it all the time that they do feel the atmosphere of the crowd. Uh, Mike Murray, our GM, he once told me a story of, you know, when during his pro career, he was uh, on the road getting ready for a major game. There was this, you know, great hype video before the game started. The crowd was into it. They were already going nuts before the game happened. And he kind of acknowledged that he and his line mates were like, oh, man. And so that first chi- uh, that first shift, opening faceoff, dump and change. It's all it was. And so, you know, it, it maybe didn't affect the outcome of the entire game, but it changed how the game started for the home team. So, um, so yeah, I think the crowd can play a major factor. And you're seeing more and more teams around the league have legitimate, strong home environments. I feel like Knoxville's always had one. Huntsville's always had one. And now they continue to climb up in attendance. Roanoke, I think, over the last couple of years has really established itself. Not saying it didn't have the fan base before, um, but I, I think you've really seen with the team having the success that it's had over the past two and a half seasons now that you know the fans get really into it and they know that it's it's not just, oh, yeah, it's a hobby. We're going to a minor league hockey game in Roanoke. It's no, hey, we've got a legitimate winner and like the fan base is strong and passionate. Pensacola, it's always been a great atmosphere whenever I've had the chance to go there. Quad City gets loud because they they get a lot of fan involvement with the Cowbell, even though their attendance numbers aren't as high as some of the other teams in the league. So I just think when you look around um, the SPHL, you find a lot of teams that you know have appropriately sized rinks for what this league can legitimately expect for average attendance. You know, there there are some teams in the league that have you know nine thousand, ten thousand seat arenas, and it's it's just really tough in this league to consistently pull those sort of numbers and sell those numbers out. That's the thing with the Ford Center in Evansville is that it's a great facility. It's a phenomenal place to play, but at the same time, because it's so big, it's that bowl-style setup that can be a little bit difficult for that crowd to really make itself heard because everything is so spread out, whereas you know Knoxville's really compact and Birmingham is really, really compact. They've got that you know, that, that kind of lower ceiling. And so when you go to Birmingham at the Pelham civic complex on a Saturday night where it's almost sold out, then you feel the noise throughout the entire night. So it, it, you know, in a way in this league, in the minor leagues, it almost benefits a team to have a smaller actual building. Even if the attendance is greater, that's the thing with the Berglund center is like, yeah, it's big, but it's not super spread out. So it's a nine, I believe it's like a 9,000 seat arena. So it's not the, you know, so they can get six or 7,000 in there and their arena capacity is listed just shy of 8,000. So they average about, you know, 5,000 a game right now. And, but it's compact. So you've, you've got like nearly 3,000 empty seats in there on a given night, but because the way the building's set up, you feel the energy and the atmosphere down on the ice. Whereas in, you know, some other buildings like Crown Coliseum and the Ford Center, they're they're kind of spread out. It it can be a little bit difficult to really have that noise directed right to the ice. So players talk about it all the time. Like they they definitely acknowledge that places are tough to play. Um, but there are a lot of guys that do get tunnel vision, I think, and that are able to focus. And part of it just depends on the team and the makeup of the player. You know, there are some players that are going to notice it a lot. There are some players that are going to be like, yeah, it just doesn't really matter where we play. Like I'm just kind of focused on what's happening on the ice. So 
it, you know, it, it really just depends on, you know, it depends on the game situation and stuff like that, regular season versus postseason. So um, I know that was kind of a wordy response, Chase, but I hope that answers your question um, and appreciate you checking out the podcast. So ultimately, it, it really comes down to, you know, what a, a franchise is able to bring in. Like Birmingham's arena capacity is only 4,100. That's about 900 less than Knoxville. So, uh, and so they only bring in, on average, they only bring in about 3,000. So that's not the highest in the league, but it's a strong, consistent fan base that makes a lot of noise whenever you go to Birmingham. I mean, Pensacola just now lost its first home game of the season. They've been averaging 5,000 a game. And it, it, it is kind of spread out, but they do a good job at forcing a lot of those seats to the lower deck, like the lower bowl in there. Um, and they get a lot of uh, crowd support and fan interaction and stuff like that. So, you know, it, it's not, you know, it doesn't mean that you can't do well with like a really big arena um, just because that upper bowl, the room is so big up there. But Pensacola does a good job at condensing all of that crowd to the lower half of the bowl and making it really loud for opponents uh, whenever you go to the hangar. So, again, I just think you look at a bunch of different teams around the league and everybody's got their own way of making it loud. And I think for Knoxville, it's the same thing. And the Coliseum's a tough place to play. And Knoxville's going to be going into other tough places to play um, because Fayetteville's been a really good team. They've been really good at home. And Roanoke has been really solid at the Berg. And Knoxville's got to go there on Sunday night. So I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this edition of the Knoxville Ice Bears podcast. Please listen, like, and subscribe. And make sure to tell an Ice Bears fan or an SPHL fan you know about the Knoxville Ice Bears podcast. I'm Joel Silverberg. We'll have the call for you for this Friday's game. Coming up on 92.5 WKCE at 6 o'clock is the Ice Bears host Fayetteville for Canadian Appreciation Night. We'll have the games for you Saturday and Sunday as well on 92.5 WKCE. I'm Joel Silverberg. Thank you for listening to the Knoxville Ice Bears podcast.